on the throne today. The Lord reigns in this place today. But does he reign in your heart today? That's what we've come to say is, Lord, you reign, but you also reign here. You see, the nations are raging because they've got God who's seated on the throne and they can't do what they want because the Lord's will will always supersede their own. The Lord's will is the Lord's will. He is in charge. Let's not be the nations raging this morning. Let's be the ones who have God seated on the throne of our heart and moving in and making ways for us because he's seated on the throne of our heart. Allow him to reign. See, the nations, their plans are fallen because God's are different than theirs. When he sits on the throne of our hearts, he says, I know the plans I've made for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. He's a good God. He's faithful when we allow him to be enthroned, when we allow him to reign. He's going to reign anyways, but will you allow him to reign in your life? He's faithful. See, Jesus was faithful to the Father, and he bore our sins on the cross. And he forgives us time and time again, faithfully. So when the walls of this world are crashing down around us, we can remember that God is still on the throne. And the Lord still reigns. And he is forever faithful. Let him reign in your life. Let him reign in your heart. Let's worship him. Walking around these walls I thought by now they'd fall For you have never failed me, Lord Waiting for change to come Knowing the battle's won For you have never failed me, Lord Your promise still stands Great is your faithfulness Your faithfulness I'm still in your hands this is my confidence, you never fail me, Lord. I know the night won't last, your word will come to pass. My heart will sing your praise again Jesus, you're still enough 
within your love my heart will sing your praise again your promise still stands great is your faithfulness your faithfulness I'm still in your this is my confidence, you never fail. Your promise still stands, great is your faithfulness, your faithfulness. I'm still in your hands, this is my confidence, you never fail me, Lord.
Congregation, you may be seated. This weekend, as our nation remembers those who have given the ultimate sacrifice on their behalf, we as a church have an opportunity to celebrate a memorial in this place, a memorial for the Lord Jesus, who has made his way into our lives and who has given himself for us. What a blessing it is to know the Lord Jesus. You know, the Apostle Paul said that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, but we're not anymore. Because God, who is rich in mercy, and because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. Today we get to celebrate the grace of the Lord Jesus, he who has brought us from death to life. And we make a memorial in this place. For bringing us from death unto life was a costly procedure. Jesus gave his all that we might be saved. Today I want to encourage you as we celebrate communion to remember the great love with which you have been loved and the great sacrifice that Jesus gave in order for you to be saved. If today you know the Lord Jesus, we would like to invite you to participate in communion with us. And the way we do that here is quite simple. We'll just have you stand in just a moment and move to the center aisle. Our servers will be waiting for you to give you the bread and the cup. Please come and get those elements and then exit through the aisles back around to the side and hold your elements until we are all able to pray together over them. If for some reason you're not physically able to receive communion today, just raise a hand about shoulder height and our servers would love to come and serve you. So at this time you may stand and would you come and receive the elements.
Is there anyone today who has not been served? We will come to you. We want to make sure that everybody is able to participate. The Lord Jesus called us to remember his sacrifice. And Paul, helping his readers to remember, wrote these words in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. And I'd like you to remember as Paul calls his readers to remember. Paul says, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace. He's made us both one, and he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, reconciling us to God in one body through the cross. Paul says we are reconciled to God because of the perfect obedience of Jesus that he demonstrated by giving his entire life unto the service of his Father. That's what you and I could not do. That's what you and I were unable to accomplish, to give our lives in perfect service to the one who created it. Jesus did. And because he allowed his body to be used, even to the point of death, death on a cross, we have been saved. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you operated in perfect obedience and we admit today as we honor you in this time of communion that we haven't, we couldn't. We were unable to obey you with our everything. We could not pay the penalty for our sin, nor could we obey you to the point of salvation. 
But Lord Jesus, you did and you have. Thank you, Lord, for giving your entire 33 years of life for us. Lord, we thank you for your body that was broken on that cross in our place. Let us eat together. Father, you have said that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. I thank you, Lord, that you have remitted our sins. I thank you, Lord, that you have made us new by your blood on the cross, that you gave the most precious element that the world has ever seen in order that we might be saved. Thank you for pouring out your blood on the cross on our behalf. Let us drink together. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood. Oh, the blood of Jesus washes me. Oh, the blood of Jesus shed for me. What a sacrifice that saved my life. Yes, the blood, it is my victory. Father God, I pray that we would live in this place of memorial each and every day, thanking you for what you've done on our behalf. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, welcome once again to Victory Life Church this morning. I'm Pastor Matt, and we're so glad that you're get, getting to uh, spend the, the Sunday morning with us. Hey, you do not need to be encumbered with these cups the rest of the morning, so if you want to go ahead and put them in the seat back in front of you, there's a small little receptacle there, and we will go ahead and grab those after the service this morning. Children, at this time, you may be dismissed for young disciples. Uh, for those of you who are new here to Victory Life, that's our children's church program starting right now, and they're going down to our South Sanctuary, uh, learning about the fruit of the Spirit, and so they're going to head out in that direction. For those of you who remain, I'm going to invite you to turn with us to our final sermon today in Jonah. We are going to be in Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. So uh, if you have your Bibles, turn them this morning. Next week, we will be beginning a new summer series, and we are going to be in the book of Romans throughout the entire summer. We're going to be in chapters 1 through 8, and so we encourage you, if you've got a notebook or something to take copious notes, great notes, we're going to be learning all about the different aspects of the gospel that has been given for us, that has been laid down for us, and we'll be talking about ways in which we can practically share the gospel once we learn what the gospel is all about. And so each and every Sunday, we'll present a different aspect of the gospel message, and then we're going to have the opportunity to go ahead and talk about how we might share that with someone who does not yet know Christ. But today we remain in Jonah, and as we mentioned five weeks ago when we began, Jonah is a bit of a reluctant evangelist. He doesn't want to go and share the good news to Nineveh. He's got some reasons that are his own. 
He doesn't want to go and do what God's asked him to do. He's got views that don't align with God's. And as we mentioned five weeks ago, the story of Jonah is really a story about God's heart. It's not the story about this man who doesn't display God's heart so much as it is a story about God's heart and God's aims and God's agenda for the world. Jonah serves to help us understand God's aims and God's heart and God's agenda for the world because he wants to do the opposite. He doesn't feel the same way God feels, and that is going to be put in stark relief here in chapter 4, and God is going to have to throw Jonah another curveball. Could you imagine that after being in the belly of a whale for three days, Jonah needs a second major lesson from the Lord? Now, for those of you who have ever had the joy of being parents, you know that sometimes our kids need a second and third and ninth message from mom and dad in order to absolutely get it. And Jonah's going to get another curveball here in which God shares something with him that he absolutely needs to hear. I use that term curveball. Years ago, I watched a special on Right Now Media called How to Have a New Kid by Friday by Dr. Kevin Lehman. And he says, when your kid is doing something so awful and so obnoxious and so sinful and so terrible, and they keep doing it over and over and over again, you need to throw them a curveball. You need to do something they don't expect. You need to stop throwing fastballs down the pike that aren't working. You need to give them a lesson that they'll never forget. I had to do this last night. I had somebody who was throwing a tantrum, and it was yucky. It was a bad tantrum, and we were in the car. Is there anything worse than a car tantrum? And I remembered something that my parents did when we were kids. They said, if you don't stop right now, I'm going to pull this car over and give you a spanking, and I don't care who sees. And I remember thinking, that threat was terrifying. I don't know that it ever happened. Now, I didn't threaten that, but I thought, you know what? I'm going I'm to scare everybody half to death. So we're making our way down 16th Street in the falls, and I've got somebody throwing a tantrum exactly three feet behind my head, and I slammed on the brakes. And I threw that thing into park, and I got out on the street, and I opened the sliding door, and I did one of these, stop it right now. And the tantrum ended. It was awesome. The curveball worked. Because there is no reason that a tantrum should have been thrown at that moment. Well, we are about to see one of the greatest tantrums in the history of the Bible. And we are about to see God throw a curveball. He's going to slam on the brakes, and he's going to open the sliding door, and he's going to get in Jonah's face and try to say, your heart is in the wrong place. And I hope by the end of today, we find ourselves in the driver's seat and not on the other side of that sliding passenger door. I hope that we recognize if we maybe are in a place where our heart does not match God's, that we would be clear on what his aims and heart and objectives are for this world, and we would bring ourselves into alignment with them. Maybe see ourselves in Jonah just a bit to get back into the driver's seat and make sure we're getting where God wants us to go. Now, we saw last week that the Ninevites, these Assyrians, these natural enemies of Israel, had repented and come to a place where they were no longer going to be judged by God after the preaching of Jonah. You might expect that Jonah, having preached in a city that was not his own, to a people that were not his own, and having had marked success, that he would be thrilled. We're going to find the exact opposite. So let's back up to chapter 3, verse 10, and let's see Jonah throw the tantrum of tantrums in all of Scripture. 
When God saw what the Ninevites did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. One translation said Jonah was disgusted, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said while I was yet in my own country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? So for the first time, we have a conversation between Jonah and God. And Jonah tells us why he did not want to go to Nineveh in the first place. He tells us why he did not want any part of preaching in Nineveh. It's not that he was scared. It's not that he was feeling a certain way about going because he had some knee troubles. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because this was going to happen. You would expect that Jonah would be triumphant. They listened to his preaching. They, they, they obeyed the word of the Lord. They turned from their evil and violent ways and came back to God. They repent and are spared, and Jonah is disgusted. He hates this. Now, we might argue that Jonah didn't want to see these people die, but he certainly didn't want them to live because these Assyrian Ninevites, they were the threat. They were the bullies. They were the people who made life Israel. They were murderous and violent and mean. And we don't live in Jonah's world. We can look at Jonah and say, Jonah, that is completely inappropriate. And the truth is, it is completely inappropriate. God's question, is it right to be angry? Certainly, the answer is no. But we don't live in Jonah's world. We're not worried about an army sweeping down out of the north, out of Nineveh, to burn our homes, kill our sons, and break up our family destroy our culture. We're not worried about all of that. But that's what Jonah had been worried about his entire life. The, the, the politics of the ancient Near East were such that he hated the Ninevites. They were the threat. And if the Ninevites were ever to decide to destroy his home, they could. In fact, we mentioned last week in 805 BC, the Ninevites had come to northern Israel and they had exacted a levy. They had made Israel a vassal state. They had made Jonah and his people poor. He had reason to, to dislike them. In fact, we find clearly that he hated them. And in spite of all of that, God says, do you do well to be angry? You see, if Nineveh had been destroyed, Jonah's life would have been better. If Nineveh had been overturned as he preached, then he wouldn't have to worry about them sweeping out of the north and destroying his country. But here's the issue. Think about the blindness that's there in Jonah. He cannot imagine that if Nineveh repents, his life could get better too. If Nineveh's destroyed, Jonah's life certainly gets better. But if, if Nineveh repents, doesn't his life get better? Does he not have to worry about them sweeping out of the north and doing violence upon his country? But he can't see it. He's frustrated by it. And this is the reason he fled from God in the first place. He didn't want them to survive. 
Could you imagine being this twisted up on the inside? He said, God, I knew your character. And what he says about God's character is exactly how God describes himself to Moses in Exodus. He says, God, I know that you're gracious and merciful. Those two words are powerful, powerful words. Our head elder, Dave Anderson, often begins his prayers thanking the Lord for his grace and his mercy because those are his two keynote qualities. We celebrated mercy today as we celebrated communion. We recognize that our sins were worthy of eternal death, but that's not what God's going to give us. He's going to show mercy to us by by the cross of Jesus. We celebrated grace today. The idea that we don't deserve good things from God, but God gives us good things anyways in spite of our sin and in spite of our shame. Jonah goes, I knew this about you, God. I knew you would do this. I knew you would save these people because you're slow to anger. I wish I was slow to anger. I wish I could could, could slow play it the way God slow plays it. Can you imagine how slow to anger God has been with you? You know that vice, that selfishness, that part of yourself that you don't want anybody to know about, or if they do know, you try to justify all the time? Imagine that. God is slow to get angry about that. Instead of being angry, he shows you steadfast love, according to Jonah, meaning in spite of your yuckiness, God steadfastly loves you. Jonah recognizes that this is the nature of God. He just doesn't want it to be the nature of God for the Ninevites. Isn't that wild? Now, I'm not saying that any of you are that twisted up. Like I said, we don't live in Jonah's world. We're not worried about the Canadian army coming and destroying us, right? Praise God. We don't live in that world. But I will say this. We can allow our views to be more important than God's character and aims, just like Jonah. We can allow our thoughts about how things are and how things ought to be to cloud our judgment when it comes to God's aims. Remember, Nineveh would not be a threat if they renounced their violence. But Jonah is so ingrained in his hatred of Nineveh that he can't see that their repentance ultimately would do him good. That's how blind he is. His views have blinded him to God's aims. Now, of course, God says, do you do, will to be, or do you do well to be angry, Jonah? And Jonah responds, well, doesn't he? Well, not quite. Let's look at verse 5. Jonah went out east of the city to throw a pity party and sat to the east of the city and made... That's not in Scripture. That was my paraphrase. And made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade until he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be able to shade his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. Is it better for me to die than to it is better for me to die than to live, says Jonah. So Jonah goes out east of the city for what? For what? What's the point? He's just sitting there and staring. He's hoping God's gonna still judge them. He's hoping that God will relent from his relenting. He's hopeful that the Ninevites are gonna get it. 
So he goes out east of the city, and any ancient city would have been a desolate, awful place. You would have stacked stones upon one another to try to make a booth for yourself so that you're not under the scorching sun, because that's all that would have been out there is stones. All the wood, all the foliage would have been brought into the city, so there's really nothing with which to make a shelter, and he's going to sit out there hoping that God brings about their end. This is wild. Jonah can't see that their repentance is good, and that's all he needed to get there for. He can't see that the threat is over. He wants the Ninevites to continually be threatened. See, his views have so clouded his judgment that he can't see that the, the battle's already been won. So he goes out, he makes a booth, and he sits there, and then we find out that God makes a bush to come up over him and shade him. And it says God appointed the bush. Do you remember the last thing that God appointed in the book of Jonah? He appointed a fish. See, when God's appointing things, it means that he's about to throw a curveball. He's about to teach a lesson. He's about to help somebody understand his aims and his heart. Jonah understood from his time in the belly of the whale that God's salvation was for him. But what is God going to prove by appointing this bush? Then we find out that the day after appointing the bush for which Jonah was exceedingly glad, he appoints a worm to eat the bush. Oh, man. Next time we're singing Blessed Be Your Name, just remember that. You give and take away, right? This is what God does to try to prove something and show something to Jonah. He needs to do this because Jonah's heart is so twisted. His views have gotten in the way of God's aims. So God appoints the bush, and he's excited about it. Isn't it funny? In verse 1, we see that God is, or Jonah is extremely angry that God showed mercy on Nineveh. Now Jonah gets a bush, and he's exceedingly glad. So his personal comfort makes him exceedingly glad. The salvation of 120,000 souls, not so much. In fact, exactly the opposite. So he's sitting out there stewing east of the city. He's glad about the bush. Then God takes away the bush. He appoints the bush and he appoints the worm. Why? Because God's trying to teach him a lesson by utterly frustrating him. Do any of you feel utterly frustrated this morning? Have your plans just not been working out the way that you think they should be? Have you been spinning your wheels? Could it just be that God has appointed some circumstances in order to try to change your views? order to try to change your aims or the suggested output that you're looking for. God is trying to teach Jonah something and he's trying to do so in powerful fashion. And he lets Jonah get sunbaked and sunburnt to the point where Jonah for the second time asks for death. Now the first time I can kind of understand when he says, I feel like dying because the Ninevites repented. Because remember, he feels like a turncoat, a traitor to his people. He doesn't want the Ninevites to be saved because those are the threat to his people. So that, 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 that was still an odd request, but at least it came from a place he thought of, of goodness. This time, Jonah's just being emotional. He's just got a sunburn, folks. He, he was so glad about the plant, and he's so emotionally overwrought that he says, it's better for me to die than live. Never in this story does God respond to Jonah's request to die? Because as one commentator put it, the request was stupid. And in this particular place, the request was stupid. But Jonah 
seems to be a very emotional character. And even though God is seen as having these emotional qualities, I, I'm, I'm grace-filled, I'm merciful, I have steadfast love, I'm slow to anger. God's patience with Nineveh is set in stark contrast with Jonah's emotionalness here in this story. Jonah's up and down, but God's got a plan, and he's working that plan. Let's look at what God's trying to teach Jonah by saving Nineveh, appointing a bush, and then appointing a worm, verse 9. But God said to Jonah, Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah said again, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. He's already ticked at the Lord. He's already mad. He's already, he's already upset. The plant was just, the, you ever say, oh, that's just the icing on the cake. Well, his sunburn was the icing on the cake. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came to be in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Mic drop. That's the end of the book. God just asks a rhetorical question, steps back and lets it go. You're concerned, Jonah. You're angry, about a bush. You're, you're, you're telling me that since I've destroyed your comfort, you're ready to die? Jonah delighted in the bush and was horrified at its destruction. And God responds to Jonah, Jonah, I delight in my creation. I am horrified at their destruction. See, these people in Nineveh, they're not a bush that comes up one night and is gone by the next. They are people created in the image of God. People that I've created that have gone astray. And look at how God sees the Ninevites. Do you remember at the beginning of this story we talked about how the Ninevites were worthy of judgment? They were an evil and a violent and a mean-spirited culture. And, and violence above all else in the economy of God will get you judged, and we demonstrated that last week. So this violent culture, God's ready to overturn them. He's ready to judge them. Yet he sends Jonah to preach to them that they might repent and be saved of this judgment. And the reason we find out is because he's concerned for them. In spite of their sin, and in spite of their just general disgustingness as a culture, he's concerned for them. He, he, he has a regard for them. In fact, God is being dispassionate here. Not passionate, but dispassionate. He's not allowing his anger to be the driving force in his decision-making. He's allowing his mercy to be the driving force in his decision-making. We see Jonah, who throughout this story is represented as angry, 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 and unconcerned about people. But we see a God who is merciful, 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 and deeply concerned about people. We have Jonah's concerns. 
And then we have God's concerns. We have Jonah's monolithic thinking. There's only one way that we can be saved from Nineveh. We have Jonah concerned about the bush and the comfort that it brings him. But over here we have God who thinks higher thoughts than our thoughts and better thoughts and better ways than our ways and is concerned about the people that he has created. See, we see Jonah and his changeableness in stark contrast with God. And that's the story here. God is acting dispassionately. He's not in the business of judging first and asking questions later. In fact, James in James 2.13 reminds us that God's mercy triumphs over judgment, that he leans on the side of mercy, and Jonah doesn't like it, but God needs him to get it. I am concerned, Jonah, for these people here, and I'm not operating in anger the way you are. In fact, I, who am righteous, am actually acting less self-righteous than you. God is concerned not only about the people, he's even concerned about the cattle. He's telling Jonah, you're worried about a bush, but I'm worried about the living things in Nineveh. But Jonah cared more about his shade than the lost and dying people of Nineveh. And what's concerning about Jonah, and what concerns me for us today, is that we as believers may not hate the way Jonah hated but we can often operate in the same anger and fatalistic mindset. We can allow our views and our views of the world to put us in position to not care about God's heart or his aims. We can be angry about all the wrong things. We can be concerned about things that are so infantile and minuscule compared to God's plan and they can they can drive us to utter distraction God's worried about 120,000 souls in Nineveh and Jonah's worried about a plant God's wanting to operate in mercy for 120,000 souls in Nineveh but Jonah is ready to operate in anger and judgment Jonah can't see the good that would come if Nineveh was saved He can only see the good that would come if Nineveh is eliminated. Jonah is angry and he is fatalistic. And that's where we can mirror him. Because our anger can be placed in the wrong things quite easily. And our hope for the salvation of souls can often be jaded because of things that we've seen. They won't care. They won't respond. I've tried and I've failed. And therefore, I'm just going to go back into my comfort. I'm going to go back into that booth of life. I'm going to expect that God will continue to provide shade over me. But as far as those people out there, I have very little concern. I've tried and I've failed. See, this is one of the craziest tantrums in all of the Bible because Jonah can't see the forest for the trees and he knows enough about God to preach the gospel but he's missing God's heart so completely that it's a referendum on all of our hearts and so I ask you today what are you angry about? 
Just think about that just this week. What got you angry? What, what got you ticked? Let me ask you this other question. What, what was your primary concern this week? What was the thing that kept coming back to your mind over and over and over again? And you were having to deal with it. What were you angry about? And what were you concerned about? Because whatever the answer to those questions are, that's a great barometer for your views. How you view life. What's important. And what's central. Was anybody concerned about lost and dying people this week? Was that at front of mind at any point? Was anybody angry about the enemy of people's souls who, who blinds people so terribly that they don't know their right from their left as the Ninevites did? God said they don't know their right from... When did you learn your right from your left? Five years old? Six years old? Ten years old? Whatever. When did you learn that? God said, even though these people are wicked and violent, they, they, they're, they're, they're babies. And that's how I choose to see them, because they need to be saved. What were you concerned about this week? What were you angry about? And what does that say about how you view the world? Were you concerned about the things of God? Because the real question of Jonah is not whether we can be a great preacher in Nineveh. The great question of Jonah is not even about the, the thing that happens with the great fish that he's swallowed by. The great question of Jonah is if man and woman desire their heart to be as merciful as God's. The desire that people be saved regardless of where people are at, regardless of past experience, regardless of anything or any view that would keep them from talking about God's mercy and grace for others. What are your views? I know you probably don't hate to the level that Jonah hate, hated, and I, I know you probably don't have fear of anybody to the point that Jonah had fear of other people. But your anger and your concerns, that's what shows your views. Will you be dispassionate and say, you know what? Those people who reject the message and reject me for speaking of Christ, they don't know their right from their left. I'm not going to wash my hands of them and say there's no more hope for them. I'm going to go after them again and again and again. I'm going to show steadfast love because God shows steadfast love. Are you going to be concerned about all of your plans? Or are you going to ask God to give you concern for his plan? These are the great questions that the book of Jonah asks each and every one of us. 
And in many ways, if we were truly open to the idea about what gets us angry and what gets us concerned and what ought to get us angry and what ought to get us concerned, we might find that we're not really in the driver's seat of our lives at all. But we don't know our right from our left. And God needs to throw us a curveball because we haven't been focused on him or his aims. If that's the case for you today, as it is for me, why don't we pray and ask him to change our hearts? Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, even in church sometimes, we can get angry about bushes, concerned about the small stuff. Even in church, Lord, we can allow our views to cloud your aims and your goals. I say that, Lord, because Jonah was a prophet used by you. Jonah was described as a servant of the Lord. And yet he missed your heart. Lord, let us not do the same. Lord, would you give us godly concern? Lord, if there is any anger in our hearts, Lord, would you erase it that we might become people of mercy and grace and steadfast love? And Lord, may we be like you and not like Jonah. May we say of our enemies and those who we believe to be so far from you, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. May we say of a lost and a dying world, not words of judgment, but fill us with acts of concern and the gospel on our lips. Help our heart to match yours, Lord. Help our heart to match yours. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Would you stand today? I hope the vast majority of you had the day off work tomorrow, and I hope you don't singe your eyebrows in the process. Good luck grilling and having a wonderful time. Make sure you stick around today. Say hi to somebody that you may not know and show the love of Christ in this building. God bless you.